What's up, y'all? I'm Angie Wolin. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a student journalist, and I'll be graduating in the fall of 22. I also, my fun fact for today is that I have one tattoo, and I'm looking to get more. I don't even know that. It's a mountain. Wow. Uh, my name is Haley Bell. My pronouns are she, her. Uh, I'm a marketing major out of the Linear College of Business, graduating in spring 2023. And my fun fact is that my favorite restaurant is Kane's. So this is Now You See Me, the podcast where we are redefining what it means to be a bear cat in this day and age. And joining us today, we have our highly esteemed guest, Felicia Nadell. And she is a UC graduate working toward a master's degree in women's gender and sexuality studies. And Felicia previously earned a bachelor's degree in women's studies in addition to English literature. Welcome to the pod. We are so excited to chat with you. Thank you. Um, I graduated from University of New Hampshire, but I am a graduate student here. Yeah. Did I say that correctly? (laughs) You just said I'm a UC graduate, but don't worry about it. Oh my gosh. It's okay. (laughs) So... Uh, I guess first, um, could you just let us know what your pronouns are? I use she, her pronouns. Okay, beautiful. And I guess we'll just also start by saying that um, you're also a graduate assistant. And so you're a TA in my Women in the Bible class. Um, So I just want to know, like, how you got into the, like, graduate assistant program. And is that your first class that you have I, I don't know, monitored? How, how do you define that? Um, okay, so basically you, when you apply to graduate programs, a lot of them will um, have, a comp- on a competitive basis, offer graduate assistantships. It's definitely a lot harder to find if you're in the liberal arts. Um, so that's one of the ways I ended up here is because it's one of the schools that I found. One of the few schools that gives you the option to even compete to get a graduate assistantship, uh, to get a master's in women's gender and sexuality studies. Um, so being a graduate assistant doesn't mean you'll like just be a TA. You might be helping in an office next semester. Me and another master's student are going to be co-teaching a WGSS intro class. Um, So this is the first, it's a Judaic studies class, and this is the first uh, class at UC that I've TA'd. But I did TA as an undergrad in New Hampshire. Yeah. And um, what is the process of, like, applying for being a graduate assistant? You said it was really competitive. So I know that was one of your main reasons for coming to UC. So was there ever, like doubt that you would even get into that program um I mean it's pretty like graduate applications are pretty similar to college applications they're just like generally more competitive because there's a bunch of colleges to apply to and you could kind of apply for anything but then once you get into graduate programs especially depending on what you're going to grad school for it becomes more specialized and not as easy to get into grad school as it is to get into college. Um, So yeah, there's always the, just like with any application, there's always the possibility that you couldn't get it. Um, So yeah. And um, you talked about how you were at the University of New Hampshire for undergrad. And then I know from class that you talked about moving to California, and now you're in Ohio. Can you just talk about those cross-country moves and kind of, like, where that's led you in a timeline? Um, Yeah, so I've definitely – I've moved around a good amount in the last four years. I graduated from University of New Hampshire in 2018 – and stayed into the summer until my lease ended. And then I moved to the Bay Area for a little bit under a year that same summer of 2018. Um, I was originally there for a AmeriCorps role, but I wasn't 
seeking out AmeriCorps, I tried to apply to a certain organization. And then the application was through AmeriCorps. Then it kind of scooped me up and like placed me somewhere else that didn't, that wasn't that great because AmeriCorps can be very like, if you land at an org, that's good. Then it can be a good experience, but you're still being paid under the poverty level. Um, And then if you land at one that you like, it might be like, okay, it's worth it for me and I'll get a second job. But if you land at one that the org isn't really for you, then it's kind of like, is it, you kind of have to weigh your options on if it's something that feels worth it. Um, so yeah, I, I was applying for a different places on the West coast and I ended up, um, somewhere in, at an org that was based in Berkeley, California and San Francisco I lived in Berkeley for a second, and then I moved to Oakland. Um, And the whole time when I was there, I was trying to figure out if I wanted – I knew it wasn't going to be forever. I was more like, do I want to live here for one or two years? Um, Ended up just being one year. I think – I like the Bay as somewhere to visit. I just don't think it's very, for me, a place I would want to live. Um, That's, like, for a bunch of different reasons. And then – I went to be with my family for a summer, and I was working on a farm in Connecticut. And then um, with applying to grad school, I had – so now we're we're in 2019, and um, I knew I wanted to apply to grad school. I was trying to skip my master's to my PhD, actually. Um, and I was trying to figure out where I wanted to live until then, and – Um, I have friends and had visited Phoenix, Arizona for a little bit on my way home from California. Um, And so I ended up going there and working at queer bars there. Um, And then it turned out that, well, so two things happened. One was while I was in Arizona is when COVID hit. So I'd been there for like four or five months and then it hit. Um, And I stayed for a few more months and then I had been planning to leave at eight months anyway so I kind of just like left like paid rent and like left a little earlier even because I wanted to be closer to my family um and yeah then it turns out that in the humanities it's not that easy to skip your master's especially when there's like with WGSS PhDs I would say it's like I mean, obviously, PhD is even harder to get into than master's. Um, and I have some friends in s- the sciences, and it seems like it's a little more common to skip to your PhD in sciences, but it seems like it, I mean, it didn't work out for me, and it also is definitely, like, less common. Um, so, yeah, so then I came home to be with my family because it was, like, hardcore mid-pandemic, no vaccinations yet, um reassessing I decided to apply just be like okay I guess I need to apply to my master's (laughs) um can't skip two years so I applied to master's programs and then kind of same thing with my move to Arizona I was like all right where do I want to be in a pandemic um because I'm not really like I love my family but I'm an adult like I don't if I can afford to I don't want to live at home even though I love them um so Um, then I was working on a great farm that is like right above Portland, Maine. And I live there, um, from like the winter of 2021 until I came to grad school here. Oh my gosh. That sounds, you've been everywhere. (laughs) And, um, but I, what do you want to do with your PhD? And I know like you're teaching a class next semester. Is teaching something that you want to pursue? In the future what what are your plans what do you think um yeah so I don't I'm not in a PhD program yet so I think for just like realistically moving through life as a human I sh- like I I would like to get my PhD but um and I do have a plan or I have an idea of what I would like to do with that avenue if it were to happen but I also don't think, like, putting all of your 
Mm, like pretending we can predict our futures is like really realistic. Yeah, um, for sure. Especially I'm in my mid twenties, so it's just so I would I would like to get a PhD in WGSS um, with like a focus in literary arts, and so that could either be like getting a PhD in English and focusing on WGSS, or it could be getting a PhD in WGSS and, like, focusing on English because they kind of are oftentimes um, the programs are in conversation with each other, and that's the niche of it that I like. Um, So, yeah, with that comes, like, you, you would be producing writing, and that's a big part of it um for me and just like that's what if you're gonna be in grad school and something that is like research based or literary based like you're gonna be coming out with writing and that's something like forwarding that is really important to me um and then also I do really like teaching at the college level so for me like what what I currently, my goal is to eventually be a WGSS and English professor um, and get to, like, be able to focus on writing at the same time. Um, but, yeah, definitely still you can have goals, but, like, realistically still taking life one step at a time. Um, and, like, technically when, if I go from my master's right into my PhD, when I end my PhD is when the climate is supposed to be risen like four degrees Celsius. So that's another thing is just like we are still living on this earth. We don't get to live in a world that isn't going through what it's going through right now. So um, it's nice to like have dreams, but also we don't know. So Right. I definitely appreciate that you're taking into account just like unpredictability of our environment and you know finding your place in that isn't something that you can predetermine yeah yeah I definitely like know what I currently want and what my goals are but I think like people like to forget that life isn't that (laughs) it's like not a math equation Mm -hmm. yeah and so you're talking about your Your, like, passion for, like, literary examination and theory and, um, like, one of the – I've taken a few introductory WGSS classes and one of the, like, larger themes that I always come back to is, like, taking, you know, theory and turning it into praxis and, um, you know, just, like, really centering on the action and, like, the agency that we can take in – you know, all kinds of different spaces to, you know, cultivate change, et cetera. Um, and I guess, like, what what are you passionate about um, in terms of, I don't know, what drives you to continue in these spaces? Are you saying, like, where do I find myself in, um, like, theory into praxis? Or? Yeah, like, what... Or, um, like, are you saying, why do I care? Why am I, why do I have a stake in it? I guess, like, what has been, like, formative for you in kind of, like, that application from theory to praxis? And also, I guess, like, what drives you to continue? Um. Yeah, I think that's something that you... Uh, I think people have to, like, once they have some type of feminist awakening, um, then there comes, like, the flooding of what do you do with this? And I think a lot of people, when they, like, when they're first coming into it, feel like they have to know everything and do everything. And there is definitely the, you know, it's, like, kind of a, it's a punch, not a punchline, it's a line in feminist cultures of, like, burn it all down and, like, start over. Um, And so I think just in general there's a phase of feminist awakening where it's very just based in, like, pointing at everything that's wrong, Um, 
which is like important to keep your eyes open to of like having critical analysis of like the way you move through the world and how um, people around you are moving. Um, And like just like having your eyes open to what's going on around you. Um, And I think a lot of people get overwhelmed with all of that information once they start seeing all of it. And something that is really that I've been instilled with. Um, and I think that if you're in a, like being taught by like feminist mentors in a community that is really like, not just trying to like point out things is like really trying to then figure out how they can do something with all of the things they're aware of. Cause like if you're just living and like pointing out issues, um, while that can like point people's attention towards things it's not really doing much after that um so something that you're definitely if you're in a nourishing feminist space taught is like okay there nobody can do every single thing and it kind of comes back to what are you good at and like what do you care about and where are you realistically useful um, and also what's like nourishing to you because you can't just, um, martyr yourself. Um, so it's kind of like, not everybody is going to be a politician. Not everybody is going to be, um, I don't know, like a healthcare, like changing the healthcare institution. Not everybody is going to be like changing the prison industrial, industrial complex. Um, so yeah, I think a big message if you're like, you really care about feminist issues and you want to be helpful and you're feeling overwhelmed by like all of the problems in the world because just like there's a lot of problems <laughs> you can't like it's hard not to feel overwhelmed really um the way to put your like feminist feelings and awareness into action is just like coming back to yourself and what you know that like you're good at um in where you're useful. And I was lucky enough that, so I went to University of New Hampshire, like we said, and that has one of the oldest women's studies programs in the country. Um, it's called Women's, and that one goes by Women's and Gender Studies. Across the country, it's like every school is kind of, there's a lot of variation in names. When I was there, it was Women's Studies. And then in the last year, they um, agreed to switch it the year after I left to women's and gender studies. Um, but yeah, the program is about, it might be over 50 years old now. I think it is because I think it was at 47 at one point when I was in college. Um, but the, I had like, I was able to do a lot of different roles within feminist and social justice communities there. So, um, for three and a half years of undergrad, I was a safe zones facilitator, which is just like a team, uh, an organization that is at a lot of colleges and undergraduate universities where you will um, basically be a team of educators about the queer community um, for faculty and staff and for students at the school. Um, so I was able to, I did that for three and a half of my four years in college. So I was able to see um how being in a role of facilitating felt um and then I TA'd two different classes I TA'd intro to LGBTQ studies and I TA'd a class called transforming gender which was like it was like trans um in a slash and then forming gender so it was very like it was focused on trans issues um so yeah, so I was able to do that, and then I also worked as a research assistant for the head of the women's, uh, the women's studies department at the time and the political science department at the time. Um, her name is Dr. Marla Brett Schneider, and she focus, her focus is in Jewish queer feminist theory. Um, she's amazing. I think she has like eight books out. She is so, her mind is just very cool. Um, very smart person. Um, but she, 
So I was able to do research for her and help her find information for two books that she was working on at the time. And like one of those summers was literally just me reading like 13 novels for her and like looking up the biography and like interview of everything Jamaica Kincaid, the author Jamaica Kincaid had ever done. Um, So I was able to really get full experience just like doing all of this background research for a feminist theorist and doing some writing for her. Um, And then I also was, uh, I interned with the WGSS department being an outreach coordinator. Um, And that one was, I, um, I pretty much was, I was in charge of like, organizing how WGSS was, like, interacting with the university community. So I would be the one, like, figuring out where we were going to table and what events we wanted to be engaged with. And then um, students that were interns or TAs had to get a certain amount of service hours, so I would be in charge of, like, helping them figure out which events they were going to help us be present at. Um So that was a lot of coordination. And then I also was on the exec board of our LGBTQ student organization for one semester when I was a first year. So I basically got to try a bunch of different types of like places that I felt like I could be useful in feminist activism. It's still very like um, academia based. We also in terms of just, like, student culture had, um, I had people who I was in classes with and in the, like, um, multicultural and WGSS community, because there was, um, the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs, and they were, like, the parent of all of the social justice-related orgs, and then there was, like, the women's studies majors and that just really was a big community of people um we are all kind of like a coalition just like that was very um that was like a community-based space and we all were like interacting with each other on campus a lot in feminist ways and um there was a anti-racism movement led by um the black student union or people in the black student union while I was at school and then just people like, um, in a lot of different parts of the, um, just like that whole group of people, whether or not you were actually like in the orgs, it was less attached to the orgs. It was more attached to like the community we were all in together. And there are basically, there are just a bunch of racist incidents that were happening at my school in the last two years Um, Trump got elected in the fall of my junior year um, while and it it was a it's a predominantly white university so obviously there was racism there already Um, but like when he got elected I think we all remember that what happened is like there was all there was I know in New York City there was a 30 percent increase in hate crimes so it was just kind of like college campuses all of a sudden exploded because it was that whole thing of like, oh, I get to just like do messed up behavior publicly. Um, And so basically that really heavy racist backlash happened on my campus. And there were people in the community that I'd been a part of where we were all kind of just like part of the multicultural and queer and like social justice related orgs. Um, We'd been like people like that had been just coalescing in community together for a few years and then there were people in our community that were literally specifically being targeted not even just at our school like threats from across the country on social media um so not like specifically academic we like I also was kind of just like um my friend who was a big leader of that movement um I just really I was one of the people that was like well, I'll do whatever you say. So there was also, I was participating in that organizing as like someone who was following somebody else's lead. Um, so in that way, I also um, was a part of just like grassroots organizing efforts. Um, 
But in that same way, it's like figuring out where you're useful. It's like my friend who was leading it, um, amongst other people, they weren't leading it alone. Um, but um, like I knew people that I was had been like growing into feminism within college who it's like, yes, you do have the brain to be organizing this and I'll do what you say because this is an important issue. But I wasn't like the organizer of the anti-racist movements. I was just like doing whatever they needed as I could um, as like a role of someone who is like Jewish and perceived as like white. It's like, okay, what do you need like your allies to do? Um, And it involved like a lot of like, um, like bodily blocking and like doing stuff that maybe like students or people of color would get more in trouble for um, instead of like uh, like white allies doing it so that um, the students who are people of color would like be safer. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, I, I was able to like figure out what a role for me might be in like grassroots organizing in a way. Um, and I think grassroots organizing is very complicated because it could go in like millions of different directions um but that was like definitely also part of that period of my life but I wouldn't say it was like specifically connected to my academic role um but that's like part of finding your way in feminism but yeah I basically realized that um I definitely don't like, I didn't like the organizer role, like the one where I was doing outreach and organizing people. My brain like wanted to explode. I hated it. Um, And then in terms of grassroots activism, my idea, I'm just like, my brain wasn't going to come up with ideas, but I do know who I trust. And for me with grassroots organizing, I'm like, okay, I will, I'm down to participate as long as I know who's the person running it. And I trust them and think that they are trying to do something good. Because I think also what we saw with a lot of the anti-racist movements of, like, um, um, a lot of my friends who I know who were um, black organizers were getting upset because once the protests had gone, gone on for a little bit, people were just kind of jumping at any event that didn't really have, they, people didn't know who was running it and they didn't know what like the message was. So I think that's also really important with grassroots organizing. Like if you want to be a part of it, like know like what the people who are running events are standing for, make sure that you're supporting something that you actually like want to support because that's just like, it's very precarious. Um, And yeah, so just like throughout those different I really got to be involved in a lot of different ways of feminist movement and I realized that I do like teaching and like not only do I like it I I also know like other people responded to me in a way that felt like I was actually being helpful um and then with writing I also started to publish some things with writing um and I got a lot of nice feedback for that too which is just like that's nice because it's something that I like to do for myself and would be doing anyways. Um, but if it's something that is like nourishing for other people too, that's cool. And I would like for that to be part of um, what I get to do. And yeah, so that's where I've figured out that I'm useful. But also I think it's important to not like limit yourself and know you could be like there might be other things that you can do. You should never like put yourself into a box, but just like from natural participation in the community I was in, I figured out where I was useful. And um, in terms of like, why do I do it? It's just like, because I care about it. <laughs> um, like I had, I've, I've like always kind of cared about feminist issues, but couldn't really name it. And then once I got, was able I found avenues of naming it um, and learned from a lot of people, then it just makes you more invested. So it's like you either care or you don't care, and then if you do, how could you possibly spend your time doing anything else? Yeah. Yeah, oh, my gosh. I just remember, like, even on the first day of class that I had with you, I was like, oh, this person's perspective is very valuable to me. <laughs> Thank like, you. seriously, it was just kind of a moment where I think I – it, you 
I, I don't know, in traditional classes, you kind of see the professor talking at you and it feels very like one way. But I love that you kind of incorporated something that I see in my other WGSS classes where it becomes a, a two-way relationship and you can kind of like build that community within the classroom and definitely like throughout semester it's just like getting more comfortable like voicing your thoughts and I just love the way that you just very gently are like leading people in the direction of like giving them the language to you know call out certain things and just like adding in the feminist perspective when they may be uninformed or like just lacking just genuinely lacking the language to speak to those things um well first of all thank you I'm happy that um I'm happy that I'm someone who's like useful to your education that's like nice to hear and then also it is so it's a Judaic studies class and it's double listed as a WGSS class um and a big part and the professor that I'm working with professor Krauss is also he's affiliated a WGSS affiliated professor um and it's just like a really important part of the way it's a key aspect of uh, WGSS classrooms like it's part of the um it's just part of like the values of how we are like taught to fundamentally run a classroom of just it's really important that there's like that awareness that uh people aren't gonna know everything and then also that um like the professors are knowledgeable right like they have degrees and or they've been working in this field for a while and like or just they're in their role for a reason um so that part is important, but also um, the students in the classroom hold knowledge, and especially just in feminist culture, nobody knows everything. You, like, can only really speak from experience, and then you can, like, learn about other people's and learn about systems, but, like, you certainly don't know everything. And so, like, then going to be in a WGSS classroom and – not teaching that way it just wouldn't really make sense but so I do appreciate that you feel like that is being executed in our classroom because that's definitely always the goal and humans aren't like perfect but also it would be super disappointing if WGS classrooms weren't run that way so it would be pretty anti-ethical to like understanding that humans hold different knowledge and stuff so yeah yeah, I think that just goes back to your first point about, like, finding where you're useful and, and like, using your strengths to, like, further the progress of the community. Um, and I also just wanted to ask, I know that one of your f research focuses is in lesbian intimacy. And, like, I did a little bit of background research before we started recording, but I had never heard that term before so um for those who are unaware could you explain that and how that goes back to other forms of feminism um so so it's like I'm in my first semester of my master's and definitely um we're in the formation of our research projects that will be like the main, um, just like the main event of our master's degree pretty much. So my project is still really forming because I'm in my first semester and it's definitely like you have to take certain classes and you start to begin to develop. Um, like you take a feminist methods and methodology course where you're learning about more like the sociological side and then you're also in a theory course and you start thinking about your ideas and, like, what your stake in feminism is, um, which can totally be in a bunch of different things over your lifetime. Um, 
but yeah so one of I have a few different ideas but it my project is definitely leaning towards a project on examining um lesbian intimacy and like they're in the queer community there is definitely specifically the lesbian community but like the queer community in general also as a culture is just aware of it of there is just a stereotype of hyper lesbian intimacy um and i mean the actual phrase lesbian intimacy is not really um to my knowledge, it's not that it's, like, a defined term. It's kind of just, like, lesbians um, as a term is, like, lesbian as a term is defined differently for anyone that, like, um, identifies with that word. It's, like, thought of as women that date other women, but definitely um, it's more to most people who – um are not transphobic the the word lesbian is not really like two cis women like just applying to two cis women like most lesbians that I know um and myself are like okay I identify as a lesbian and that is like also applies to gender like I'm interested in gender non-conforming people and trans people um it's really usually just like I do not date cis men and I don't identify as a cis man. And a lot of people, that's, like, very common for what, like, modern lesbians would identify the word lesbian with. Um, but, like, it really depends on person to person and relationship to relationship. Like, some people who identify as a lesbian might date somebody who is, like, gender nonconforming and their partner might not identify as a lesbian. Um, so... It's just like, yeah, um, so it's it's not like I think anything in the queer community, if you try to like point down a really hard stamp on a definition, you're going to get a lot of pushback and like rightfully so. And the only people that really use lesbian in a very like definitive like I am a cis woman that dates cis woman, it just like airs on transphobia and it's like hard to not there's not really an explanation for that not to be transphobia, honestly. Um, so that would be in the turf realm, which is like trans exclusionary radical feminist, which is not actually feminist, um, is just like transphobic. Um, so like at the very basis of it, it's just what it is, is like intimacy is usually just like a closeness that you feel to different degrees um, with other people. So lesbian intimacy as a concept is literally just lesbians having intimacy. Um, but the research that I'm, uh, like looking into is the concept of like, so everyone in the queer community, especially lesbians talk about hyper lesbian intimacy existing. And I just want to look at that and be like, is this real? Um, because it's a thing that we all observe and all name. And so I'm interested in looking at it through like art and different aspects of culture that would, um, allow you to like have a lens into lesbian intimacy. So maybe there's like, there are songs that lesbians have written about their love or their, is like painting or their TV shows or movies and kind of like examining those and seeing what it, um, what it could reveal about the way social structures or systems or different systems of oppression could be, um, creating an environment where lesbians have hyper intimacy. Um, and just like, is that concept what might make hyper intimacy happen in lesbian communities? And then if it is, they're kind of like examining that um, and like seeing how it's been represented through arts. So it's very like broad right now. And like art is really broad. It could be like books, movies, paintings, like sculptures. So that's like the really baby phase of the project I'm in. I just interviewed somebody um, 
for my methodology class within the same um because they're like starting to teach us how to really do like sociological research so I just interviewed somebody with questions about lesbian intimacy um so I like started to do research but um over the course of like in your second semester of the WGSS master's program at UC you start kind of like doing guided readings and like whittling down a more pointed research question right now I'm definitely in the phase of research where you're just like taking as much useful information in as possible um and that uh you asked like how does that apply to feminism and I think it's just kind of to me it's very obvious but just like lesbians exist in a myriad of systems of oppression lesbians are like every ethnicity um lesbians are like only within the realm of gender-based oppression like you're either um trans or gender non-conforming or you're a woman and so just and like we live in a sexist racist heteronormative transphobic like society so it's just like inherently something that's important to look at and intimacy and love is like of course going to be affected and how we relate to each other um so it's of course all within the same realm and important to feminist issues yeah um so I'm also curious just what your perception of like how these forms of expression and representation have changed even like in the past 10 years like I think about Growing up, we didn't have these kinds of narratives um, where we could, uh, as commonly, um, and what like kind it, of narratives? Um, just like queer narratives, like in obviously in like feminist literature, but like I don't know in predominantly straight spaces or like network television. You know, we didn't see as many queer couples. Um, and I guess, like, I just wanted to hear your perspective on, like, the shifts that are happening and, um, just, like, what you, I know you're in the baby stages of your research, but just what you have noticed so far in terms of, like, commonalities across, like, different forms of expression. Um, so are you saying, like, within, because there's more, um, just like representation of queerness now within the newer representations, what are similarities? Yeah, just like as it's becoming more quote-unquote mainstream, what kind of like patterns are you noticing? And I guess this is extrapolating further, but like are they playing into the stereotypes that we do hear in the queer community about the queer community? Or do you think they're kind of like rewriting the script? Um, so it is very interesting. There are definitely, um, we were just talking about this in my feminist theory class yesterday, actually, um, because there, what happened, like, so there's the word assimilation, which is, um, basically when, any culture or any type of existence is um, brought into the mainstream and watered down and made to, like, match what's socially acceptable in mainstream culture. Um, And, like, we live... So this is all going to be, like, U.S.-based perspective, which is important to say, Um, because definitely other cultures um, on the earth (laughs) right now uh queer is not the mainstream and like there's still a bunch of places on this earth that do not even mention it Mm -hmm. um so definitely important to name that this is all a reflection of like the united states also important is like um i grew up in suburbs of manhattan in connecticut and um all of my family except like one family unit in la who the parent of like still grew up where I grew up um all of my family is either in the city or 
like within two hours of it. And I have older queer people in my family. Um, I have older lesbians in my family. Um, and then also just other queer people in my family. And um, I think that's all relevant because um, it was a lot society was a lot more heteronormative just like while I was growing up and I'm only 25. Um, but at the same time, definitely like living <laughs> in the suburbs of New York is very different from living in other parts of the U S where I would have gotten like way less queer exposure. Um, and like New York is one of the known bases of like queer activism in the United States. Um, so that's just like all really relevant to my answer to this because um, queer representation was way less, but then also when queer representation is less, what you get is like a lot of queer produced niche um, creations of queer art. Um, you might, y'all also, what you also get is like in the mainstream, if there's queer people, they're like represented poorly and as villains when queer. Um, people are less sort of like mm, deemed socially acceptable by the norm. So they're often like represented poorly or villainized. Um, but the queer produced things that come out are like very for the queer community. And um, I think when, when communities are like so marginalized, then their own spaces become very like, for them because it's what they have um and right now we're definitely in a weird transition phase where like it's nicer that there's more queer content and I think there's a lot of um but I still think we're just in an era where it's like if there's queer content that's more niche and like only really made in within the community that's the stuff that's more for queer people. And it might be like easier to find those queer spaces now. Um, but in terms of like what's in the mainstream, it's still very disingenuous. Um, and there's like a push for there to be more queerness in the media. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's queer things for queer people. <laughs> um, uh, like there's very little of that. Um, I think it's like still to an extent there's like a lot of queer like babies who it's better for them to like see that they that there's queerness on television even if it's like really disnified and like not at all um what queer culture is <laughs> in any way shape or form I still think it's like good that it's it's better that it's there than literally not existing at all but I still think like in terms of queer art and representation the only thing that's actually for the queer community is are the things that queer people are making um, that like actually connect with them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you including you, like the context of your personal background because oh my gosh, I can't even like imagine growing up with like older queer people out in my life. Like it just felt like growing up there. I don't know. You just kind of feel like you're in a little bubble where you're not seeing yourself and the people around you. So I definitely agree that it is harmful that like queer narratives in more like popular media are like tainted views of what the reality is. But I do agree that like it's better than nothing. But I also see where that's becoming like a tokenism um and it's like adding it in to appease the queer community and not so much let them in well Is also um no because i don't think it's for the queer community i think okay. it's for straight people to pat themselves on the back that they made queer media and yeah. now they can carry on with their own little thing because like the scripts of certain queer things that have been made for netflix i'm like you did not but you hired like a 10 year old to write this and you hired someone who's been working in the field for like 40 years for this other project. That's all straight people. So I don't, it's not, um, I don't even think it's for queer people. I think they're like checking a box off their little list. And then also, um, the damage it does is it like 
promotes assimilation and promotes the concept of like queer people existing in a way that's so it's really just representations of what straight people um deem socially acceptable for queer people to act like in public um so then that also creates a separation in queer culture where maybe people who like um fit what straight like straight society wants them to be um it's like okay if you're queer but just like do everything else that a straight person would do like want a family uh benefit capitalism like white supremacy ableism like all of the things um so I think it's harmful um I think it's harmful for the queer community in many ways because it's like be happy with this and it's like okay this doesn't really represent us and then it's also like promoting a separation within the queer community of like people that are like we have this now let's just like be good and what the straight people want and then there's a bunch of people that are still like they're never gonna be what um mainstream society wants them to be and they don't want to be and um like these representations are hurting them because they don't like match it yeah absolutely I think like it's one thing to, I don't know, to watch these queer representations and, like, I don't know, support that sort of checking the box mantra that the industry has. But also, I think that, like, does allow you the space to, like, critically examine that and, like, question whether that is an accurate representation and like look into like the background of the you know production to see if there are queer folks involved in that right so it's like if there is stuff that's being made by the queer community that's a different conversation so like things that are made by and for the queer community that's for the queer community but when things are just made very poorly um and not for (laughs) actual queer people it's very apparent and then also, there's the part of, like, okay, is more queer visibility um, going to make just, like, queer existence safer in this country because people are seeing queer people on their television, and so they're less hateful towards queer people when they see them in the world. And it's, like, um, that one is something that we just really don't know because um, – what happened when, like, trans visibility got really heightened a few years ago was, like, all of these trans women who are people of color, like, the numbers of them getting killed went, like, like skyrocketed. Um, so, yeah, it's just, like, really, it's really a delicate situation of, like, obvious, like, representation, more representation can't be, like, all bad. I don't think it's all bad. I just think it's, like, when you're, um, when you're in a group that's, like, completely subjugated and marginalized by society and, like, the people that hold power and, like, the way the society still runs is, like, still sexist, like, still racist, still ableist, still classist, still just, like, xenophobic, like, anything you could think of, like, the representation that comes out of it is, like, still from, like, the top down, and it's still gonna, it's not gonna be all positive, just because there is, like, more representation of a culture that that's marginalized is that all bad no but is it gonna like yield all good also no because it put a lot of trans people in actually like heightened danger yeah absolutely and just like examining that it is still a predominantly white narrative and we are still trying to you know create more inclusive stories and that it's it while it's progressing toward being more mainstream it doesn't necessarily reflect how society as a whole is Mm -hmm. accommodating for queer circles yeah very disney like queer people that get to be in the limelight look like models um a lot of fat phobia a lot of racism a lot of ableism and then you see like to in like 
sexism and like yeah just like tokenization is definitely part of it yeah um so yeah i could talk about this for hours (laughs) but i do we are running out of time uh do you have any like final thoughts for people who are starting to get into feminist spaces and just trying to like find their way into i don't know the realm and the like endless amount of information that's out there Mm -hmm. i think like um there's two sides of it of like definitely um definitely it's a good thing that you're leaning into feminism um and then there's just the side of like okay um leaning in is important and there's gonna be feelings of discomfort and that's not necessarily bad um but then also I think for a lot of baby feminists there can be like a confusing way of dealing with like any guilt you might have um so I think it's really just like lean into discomfort and like challenge yourself to unlearn ways that you've been like taught to be a damaging person in society and like definitely work on like receiving information and just like trying to sort out what you can do to be better um but at the same time uh like just self martyrdom and like completely um not nourishing yourself and not being forgiving to yourself isn't the answer either so I think it's just like trying to like let yourself be open to unlearning and like uh try to take in what you can but also don't like kill yourself um because I think yeah there is just that feeling of like I have to know everything and do everything I feel like it's more learning like how to receive information take it in and then like try to do better because like nobody's gonna do all the things and say all the right things and that might result in like bad exchanges happening with people um and that's just how it is like you're you might say the wrong thing mess up and like figure out how to do better and then that person still does not like you anymore and like that just might be the situation like nobody is gonna like be a perfect feminist um and it's definitely important to try to um lean into feminism and like do your best but also like expecting that you're gonna be perfect is not the vibe yeah yeah I definitely agree that like trying to perfectly balance um like your own personal biases with the I don't know the criticisms that you're taking in it's it's very difficult so um i appreciate you speaking to that and um we really loved having you on i'm gonna be like thinking about this for hours and (laughs) while i fall asleep at night i'm gonna be like reflecting thanks for having me both of you (laughs) yeah um are there any like resources or anywhere for listeners that want to get more involved like is there anything that they can do hmm um I mean, okay, so if this is, like, for particularly UC, for UC, there's, like, the LGBTQ Center, and there's a lot of great, like, intro to WGSS classes. Um, If you just, like, look on, um, and it's, like, I'm so new to UC, but I also know that there's a bunch of, I think there's a bunch of students. I have known nothing about undergrad life, and I only know about the, um, LGBTQ center because someone who is also an MA student with me works there. Um, and then I guess if I'm thinking of other graduate students, another graduate student that I, um, I'm in the program works with Women Helping Women, um, which is also another Oregon campus that does a lot of good work. Um, it's, I think it's a national organization. But yeah, um, in terms of just like I, I know the most about WGSS and definitely their website has like classes you can take and events that you can look into. Um, and 
um, there's a great podcast called Hood Rat to Head Rap um, with Erica Hart and Ebony. Um, I'm not sure of Ebony's last name, but that's a great podcast. There's a bunch of like feminist resources out there. I can't, I cannot come up with a list, but definitely on campus. Um, the WGSS department is one of the like founding programs in the country and it has a lot of great resources. So just like getting involved with the department in any way you can is definitely a good idea. Yeah, we'll do our best to include link to the WGSS website as well as any related student orgs that um, you can join and participate in. Now You See Me is a BearCast production hosted by me, Haley Bell. And me, Angie Bolin. Haley also produces each and every podcast episode, Bless Her Soul, and uh, has also composed our killer theme music. Thank you for tuning in and sharing this time with us. Be sure to follow our Instagram at NowYouSeeMePod. Again, that's NowYouSeeMePod. We'll be posting on there with updates and guest previews. You can find this week's episode anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you next time. Bye.